A quick fact before we get into today's episode. There are less than 10,000 bilbies left in Australia. 10,000? I had no idea it was so few. Which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Daryl Lee milk chocolate bilby this Easter. The good folks at Daryl Lee will again donate 20 cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Daryl Lee bilby for mum. Buy one for the kids. Buy one for your Uncle Steve and help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more Bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, madman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Collis is best known for his hilarious and heartwarming book, Full Contact Sudoku. He's also a poet, radio host, singer, creative director and much in demand public speaker. Charming as he is multi-talented, he is a true Aussie one-off. So Mick, welcome. I am so pleased to have you on Five of My Life because I've been wanting to get you on for ages and it took me a while uh, to convince you to come on because you were worried. Why were you worried, mate? Hello, Nigel. It's great. It is good to be with you. Um, I was worried because I've listened to a couple of them. I haven't listened to all of them, but I've listened to a couple. And the guests that you've had in the past have been highly intelligent, uh, quite deep thinkers, and that's what I'm not. So I didn't want to sort of bring down the tone of your show too much. That's why I was a bit hesitant. So it was more protecting you than protecting myself. Okay. Now, listen, because that's interesting, because some of the people that I approach uh, have also said similar things to that, where they are worried that they're not going to be literary enough or whatever. And and five of my life, it's got nothing to do with being highbrow. Some of the guests, some of the guests that you've had though are quite like high achievers or or very well known. So uh, yeah, so it's a bit um, intimidating to be in amongst that. Thinking I have to try and live up to something that they've done. Ah, okay. So, so so as my daughter said to me this morning when I told her I was interviewing uh, you, she said, "Oh, the bloke, uh, the rugby bloke who's not good enough." <laughs> yeah, so there you go. <laughs> and my wife said that she she said when I said that you wanted me to do it, she said, "What are you going to say? You're not going to be interesting enough." So that's so she sort of planted the seed quite early. Okay, well, 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 let's put this to the test and crack into your first choice. Now, before I reveal uh, your film, and we always start with the film on Five of My Life, you, you need to know that John Eels chose Blades of Glory. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Grant Hackett chose Wedding Crashers, Rosie Waterland chose Grease 2, and Lane Beachley chose Austin Powers. 
So, okay. so, so, you know, let's put to rest any worry about you've got, you've got, you've got to choose some... I'm in good company. Yeah, yeah. So, so don't worry about being lowbrow, which is good because you have chosen the 2008 <laughs> Will Ferrell and John C. Riley comedy Step Brothers. So, mate, yep. tell us on Five of My Life why you like that and your story behind it. I'm, I'm quite simple. Nigel, I just find that the comedy in that very simple. I like comedy films. That's what, if ever I sit down with my wife to watch a film, I go straight to comedies and she gets annoyed because that's all I want to watch. So I, I've always enjoyed hanging out with my mates and that was my whole upbringing. We were never about girlfriends and that's probably our excuse as to, as to why we never got any because we preferred each other's company. But I just, I enjoyed hanging out with my mates and then I was, I was lucky I had a, a mate called Marty Roebuck who moved down from Bathurst and uh, when he came down to Sydney to, to play rugby and he moved in with my family and I just had myself and my sister. My sister was overseas, so Marty moved in and, and he became uh, sort of a, this brother that I'd never had that we lived together and, and we, just used to, we just used to muck around the entire time and there was one time we, we got, we were wearing big baggy track suits and track suit tops and we stuffed a whole lot of pillows up inside our track suits and put little plastic bike helmets on and Vegemite under our eyes and we were pretending that we were part of the NFL. And we always wanted to get double bunks because we thought it would be more fun to, to have bunks together. And then we used to train up at, at TG Milner at Eastwood. And we always thought about getting a, a motorbike with a sidecar. And we thought, how fun would that be to drive around with the two of us in a motorbike and a sidecar? And then I moved across to Perth and I continued just living with my mates and just enjoying their company. And then I stumbled upon this film and it was, it was two blokes who were, I think they're 40 and they're still doing exactly what I would love to be doing <laughs> and 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 so I just there was something about it that just really I mean even they they talk they get they had the double bunks which you know my mum and dad wouldn't let me actually do it but there they ended up doing it and um so yeah it just it just really struck a chord about how much I enjoyed just hanging out with my mates that's um it's, it was really that simple it just I just I just find it very funny in a very simple film I'm glad you chose it because it gave me an excuse to to, to re-watch it but it features two of the best songs in uh, movie <laughs> history so I mean boats and hose <laughs> I mean <laughs> yeah so that that's so the song at the end I'm, I'm not even sure what the Italian do you know what the Italian name of that song is? It's do, you, like, do you know I do? It's Conti Partiro. Yeah, and and it, it, it's translated completely wrong because it says time to say goodbye. What it actually means is I'll leave with you. But forget that. It's a brilliant song. It's a fantastic it's song. It's a brilliant song. And, and it's one of those songs that, like the end of that scene where, where he's doing that, yeah, and he's throwing in, John C. Rowley's throwing in boats and hose during this beautiful song. And, and it's a song that a lot of people play at funerals. And, and I've been at a couple of funerals where as the, the coffin's you know, sinking down at the end of the ceremony and they start that song up and I'll look across to some mates of mine that have seen that film and we just, you can't help smile. And I know it's completely inappropriate, but every time I hear that song now, whether it's at a funeral or wherever it is, I just think back to that film and with John C. Riley on the drums just chipping in boats and hose, boats and hose. So it's um, yeah, very simple humour, but it's great. <laughs> it was written, directed, produced and acted by the same team, all exactly the same people who did Talladega Nights uh, two years earlier. Yep. Uh, so, so for them to get it made was, was unbelievably easy because it's the same crew. Uh, um, you are making a film as we speak. Um, how, how have you found that process and how uh, are we going with it? It's been a lot of fun. And, you know, I've always thought guys like, um, you know, Will Ferrell and um, Adam Sandler and guys like that, that that just make fun movies with their mates, I just think there couldn't be a better way 
to earn a living. And Adam Sandler in particular, when he does those grown-up films, he's done two of them. It's just five of his mates, and they just they just muck around. And I don't know how long it takes them to shoot, but they just they muck around. So I yes have been doing um, a film with with a mate of mine. He'd written a film, and I didn't know how to write a movie, but I but I had the idea. So we've been working together for four years. We just actually got off a Zoom meeting with the producers this morning. So there's about two bits of dialogue that we need to refine, and then that script will be going off to Madman before Christmas for them to sort of give it the final sign off and then they'll send it out to directors and um, they'd ideally like to be starting to shoot next year so again that's been a that's just been a really fun process and um, and the film is again it's about my mates so you know my, my dream is to walk down the red carpet and see a movie about me and my mates would um, that'd be the, the you know the icing on the cake. And is it true that Eric Banner's going to play you or, or have I just he's, made that? He's, yes so he's been thrown around we haven't told Eric that yet but, uh, but he's certainly he's on the wish list of actors and the two other there's two brothers in the film and they want the Hemsworth brothers to play them and they said they don't want the dud third Hemsworth they want the two good Hemsworths otherwise they're not interested so so even that that you know that whole side of things just you know pretending who's going to play each other has just been um been a lot of fun and I said to the producers that if if there's a scene where I need a lot of extras to come along can I provide the extras and they've said yeah definitely so I, I just love to get all my friends there's a scene in a in a pub over here in Perth I just love to have all my friends in this scene, in this pub, and then when the movie finally gets made and we have the red carpet premiere, I know everyone will be sitting looking at that film and they'll spend the whole time waiting until they see themselves on camera and that'll be the most important and exciting thing for them. Then I think we'll have to start the movie again so everyone can actually just watch the movie without you know, getting over the excitement of seeing themselves. So it's a, it's a bit of a pipe dream, but look, it's heading in the right direction. It's been four years in the making, but we're as close as we've ever been so fingers crossed it'll uh it'll get done oh wonderful well i can't wait to see it mate and listen let me know if you're filming any scenes in sydney because i'd love to be in the background in a pub (laughs) um so we're moving on to your second choice on five my life um and before you tell us uh what book you have chosen uh to talk to me a little bit about uh your initial response to this was was you're saying well I'm, i'm not a big book reader you found this one a bit challenging i don't read i don't read books which is um people think are strange because my job I'm a writer that's that's kind of what I do and and I remember I was at a, an advertising agency and my creative director he couldn't believe that the only thing I read was inside sport magazine I, I never read I didn't read books so I've, I read a couple of books at school because I had to and then I've, I've read a couple of sports autobiographies or biographies whatever it is whether people either write it themselves or someone writes it about them so I'm, I'm certainly not a reader so when you did say what's your favorite book I really had to dig back and think well what's the most recent one I've read and it was one by uh, Peter Fitzsimons called Batavia and I, you know, I've, I've got to know Fitzy over the years so I, I kind of lean towards his stuff because I can generally understand what he writes about and he, he writes in English and he tells good stories and and that one for me was living in Western Australia about this shipwreck that happened on the west coast of Australia back in 1629 um, I just found the, the historical story about that ship was it was extraordinary, and I, I don't think enough Australians actually know about that particular episode in Australia's very long and storied history that goes back sixty thousand years. But but this one in sixteen twenty nine, where the shipwreck and and the brutality and the the barbaric events that went on with this shipwreck with people being murdered and raped and and having hands cut off it was it's an extraordinary chapter in australia's history that not not enough people know about and i think being in 
in Perth and, you know, having come from Sydney but living here now and then to find out this little bit of history that's, you know, 10 hours up, up the coast, um, I was just absolutely blown away by that story that I that I just didn't know until then. Well, well you and me both, mate, and, and I, I mean, obviously, I, I, I read the books that my guests uh, choose, uh, and it really upset me. I mean, Fitzy is a friend of, of this podcast. He's, he's been on and shared his five, which was great. But I read that book. It, it really, really upset me, the notion of, of the, the, that horrible, uh, he wasn't the captain, but one of the senior officers deciding that he had to murder you know, a hundred innocent women and children so that yeah. the 40 of his mates would have enough food. And it made yeah. me want to to ask you about your view of, of evil and morality and, and are you a religious man? Look, I was brought up as a Catholic and I'd, I'd still say I'm a Catholic. I don't practice very often, but I try to, I try to be a good bloke. I, I guess that's my religion. I, I try to do the right thing by people and um, I'm not a god botherer by any stretch of the imagination, but I sort of got a bit of a moral compass that I try to to stick to. And I think I was I was disturbed, like you, at, at the behaviour of the way some of those men treated other not not just the women and children, but the other like the way they treated other human beings. Just I, I couldn't believe that it was that it was real. It was almost something that you'd see in a movie and you think, oh, this couldn't be true. But all this stuff had actually happened, and just no no concern about about human life other than their own it was just all about self-interest and the extent that they went to for their own self-interest you know even even when they'd send them across to that other island because they thought there's no water over there so they'll all just go over there and die and and just how this this bloke could be so callous and just not care about anyone was was extraordinary and even it was so barbaric if they charged someone first before they hung them they'd cut their hands off and then they'd hang them like it was just it was unbelievable it was unbelievable <laughs> I, I mean I, I wasn't very proud of myself I was a little bit ashamed but I was pleased when they cut his hands off and hung him yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's how bad the bloke was yeah. that's how bad he was it was just yeah I, it was unbelievable it was just uh, anyway I'm back in 1629 so you know we're, we're a long time away and that's the most inhospitable terrain up there where there's no there is no trees there's no shade it, it is just hot and it'd be just a, it'd be a horrible place to be shipwrecked. And you know, it, I think it took him six months to go back to wherever he was to then come back again. And just for those poor people, just not knowing how long that they were going to be there for, and the fear that they would have had, and and just knowing what they'd seen. Like one of the blokes had his you know his wife and kids murdered in front of him, and just mentally trying to survive in in that situation. Just I, I can't fathom how they anyway actually did survive over there. Well, listen, on a happier note, you mentioned that you, that you are a writer and, and, and you are a wonderful writer. I, I, I urge all my listeners to uh, check out Mick's work. You've written five books and um, three of them are poems. So, mate, you, you hide your light under a bushel. <laughs> t- t- tell us about your, your poetry. I mean, there's a theme. What rhymes with George? What rhymes with Djakovic? What rhymes with Milsey? But, but tell us a little bit about your poetry. Yeah, so it started off. I remember I wrote, I wrote my first poem. I remember I was in year, would have been year nine or ten at school, and we had one a, a class. We were given a picture, and we had to write a story about the picture. And I thought, oh, I can't be bothered doing that, so I'll, I'll just write a poem so for some reason I wrote a poem about this picture and it it went okay and then I went home you know a couple of months later and I wrote a poem about my under 15 rugby coach at the time again I don't know why I did but I just thought that that I did and I would and it it worked out alright so I started doing some stuff and then I'm not going to say I got a reputation for being able to write poetry but I got asked by the West Coast Eagles to write a poem about a guy called Glenn Jakovic to celebrate his 250th game so I wrote two poems 
about him and then I read them on the day of his 250th game to the some of the rooms uh, the corporate hospitality rooms out of the game and and by this stage I had you know maybe 30 poems that I'd done and I thought oh, and I remember when the, the first when the Eagles asked me to write about Djakovic the first thing that came to my head was what rhymes with Djakovic that was my that was going to be my biggest problem trying to rhyme his words so when I ended up having about 30 poems I thought oh instead of me just having them sitting in a drawer I might you know just just try and stick a book together so I called that one what rhymes with Djakovic and then I started doing a segment on 6PR which is a radio station a sister station I think it's to 2UE 3AW 4BC and uh, 5AA and I'd go in there at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Friday during the breakfast show they would give me a topic listeners would ring in with words about that topic and then I had an hour to go away and then write a poem including those words on that topic and come back and read that after the 8 o'clock news so it became the most stressful Part of my I was going to say, sometimes. wow, slam poetry live. Yeah, yeah. So some of them, some of them actually worked out pretty well. I'd read them back and I thought, wow, how do I, how do I do that? And others, I'll, I was a bit embarrassed about. But I thought I only had an hour, so if, if it was no good, I had a great get out of jail card that people listening will think, oh, it's okay. He only had an hour. And if it was, if it was mildly good, people thought, wow, he only had an hour. So it was a kind of a, a win-win situation for me. And one of the guys, Steve Mills, was one of the, the breakfast hosts, and he always used to joke at the end oh that's that poems from the book what rhymes with milsey and that was just an in gag that we had but after a couple of months we started having listeners ringing up saying oh where can i buy the book what rhymes with milsey and we had to say well look it actually isn't a book we're just mucking around so i thought oh look why don't we do one and call it what rhymes with milsey so i did that and then um over the next 10 years i'd i'd written more and there was a guy called george grilizic who was a broadcaster on 6pr and when he saw what rhymes with jakovic he just said Grilizic. So I thought, okay, fair enough. So I thought for my third book, I was going to call it What Rhymes with Grilizic, but I thought Grilizic is too hard to Google, so I just called it What Rhymes with George, which was a lot easier to spell. And uh, and that was, yeah, my third collection of poetry was yeah, called What Rhymes with George, but all been a bit of fun, just a lot of sports stuff that I've done and, and a few, uh, so I've been asked to write a couple of poems for, for various corporations, so I've stuck a couple of them in, or if there's been any sort of global incident that has touched me in some way and it's made me put pen to paper I've included that in the in the collection as well but Nigel as you said it hasn't been a money-making gesture and trying to make money out of poetry is like throwing a a rose petal into the Grand Canyon and hoping to hear an echo it's been been purely a a labor of love well listen mate why don't you recite one if you don't mind me asking why don't you recite one how about the um, cracking out the ultimate test yeah the ultimate test and the story behind that is it's about a young guy who wanted to play for Australia and always hoped it would be in a on a sports field but it ended up being on the battlefield and the poem just comes in the form of a letter written by this young soldier to his father from the trenches just about to go into battle so it just starts off dear dad remember the day that you took me to town and we went to the SCG you bought me a flag and we stood on the hill and I sat on your shoulders to see And remember my words when the game reached its end, how I said what I wanted to do? I said, that was great, Dad, and when I grow up, I'll play for Australia too. Well, here I am, Dad. I've stayed true to my word, but it's not how I hoped it would be. The crowds have all gone and the ground is a mess and there's nobody cheering for me. I'm hungry and cold, but I'm starting to sweat. Me words can't describe how I feel. I'm not in a jersey, I'm not wearing shorts, and my first cap is made out of steel. My gut's in a knot and I almost feel sick. I've gone two whole days without sleep. My feet are quite damp, for we've walked most of the night through mud that was six inches deep. I'm nervous as hell and I can't settle down. I keep wondering how well I'll do. But I guess that's just normal and how it should be on the eve of my national debut. 
the waiting's the worst thing we just sit around what happens is out of our hands we all feel like pawns in a big game of chess swapping lives for a small stretch of land so many have fallen it seems such a waste to say it's a lark is a lie I'll do what I'm told and I'll keep my head down and I'll pray that the Lord's on my side well dad I must go for we're ready to start it seems we've been given the word the silence is eerie the boys are all quiet our heartbeats the only sound heard we'll stick with each other we'll fight till we drop we'll each give far more than our best tell mum I am happy I ask for no more for this is the ultimate test your son oh mate I mean I, I mean I know that poem uh, but it still moves me uh, gosh yeah it's one of those um, and again I, I, I read that back and I think wow that's that's pretty good did I actually write that so it's uh, it's one of those weird things that sometimes it, that they work out alright and that's one I'm yeah particularly proud of because I've got an enormous amount of respect for our servicemen and women and, and you know I, I couldn't imagine doing what they went through so it's uh, it's just my little you know personal tribute to, to them and, and what they went through for us well listen thank you for reading it and I thoroughly recommend your poetry to, to everyone listening <laughs> change pace we're going to go to the 80s and for the first time ever on five of my life we're going to add rod stewart to the five of my life spotify (laughs) list we're going to 1981 to the hilariously titled album tonight i'm yours you've got a (laughs) you've got a love rod Um, and and his uh, single young turks which is uh, ironic because that that phrase never appears in the song Tell us why you have chosen that song on Five My Life, Mick. Well, can I just say, if I ever wanted, to, if I could ever come back as someone, I'd come back as Rod Stewart because <laughs> I, I think people talk about living the dream. He was a, a rock star, and who doesn't want to be a rock star? He played soccer. He wasn't ideal, but he just ended up buying his own soccer club, so he always was guaranteed a game. And he was married to a supermodel. So for me, he just he ticks every single box. And I remember that song, and I've, I've probably never listened to the words. You've probably listened to it more closely than I have, but I always remember when I was at first year university and I was doing a Bachelor of Arts in Communications. And as so you had some, the way that uni works, and I don't know why they do this, but you've got to make up a certain number of units to get points to, to make your units count, whatever it might be. And I was doing this unit on electronics and I, I did not know what I was doing. I don't know why I ended up picking it, but I did. And I remember sitting in my room one night trying to do an assignment that I just... I, I couldn't understand. It was all about diodes and electrodes and things that were just so far beyond me, it's not funny. And that song came on the radio and there was a line, and I was getting, I wasn't getting depressed, but for a young bloke, I was probably only 18. And this was, you know, a really, a, a really stressful time for me not being able to do this assignment. And that song came on the radio and there's a line in it where it says, young hearts, stay free tonight. Time is on your side. And, and I, just when I heard that, for some reason, it just made me, relax like it was almost like this weight had been lifted off my shoulders that I was getting so caught up about this one unit of a of a one semester course that I was doing and I didn't need to worry about it because time was on my side and and every time I hear that song I don't know why but it's one of those things that just sticks in my head and it calms me down because it makes me think that you know don't worry about all this stuff because 
I mean, I'm running out of time now, but at the particular time, I had a lot of time ahead of me. And it was, um, as I said, I've probably never, I've probably never listened to the song in its entirety and, and understood. I still don't know what the song means, but there's just that particular line in there affected me and and was highly beneficial at that particular time for me and I'll never forget it. That's wonderful to hear you say that because I'm, I'm glad you heard that line because because the lyrics are totally contradictory. So so that Aren't line yeah, that, that line is brilliant and 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 you're right he he said that and that's a that's a useful sentiment to help you put things in perspective. But about 3 lines later he goes because life is so brief and time is a thief when you're undecided. So completely the opposite <laughs> point, which is oh, hurry God. up, mate. Yeah, you're, lucky running, <laughs> you're running lucky out of time. Yeah, lucky <laughs> I stopped listening. Uh, so, so can I ask you, mate, are, are you decisive, do you think? Am I decisive? No. Okay. No, I don't, th- oh, no, I don't think I am. I, I, you can't decide if, whether you're decisive. Yeah, that, that's the <laughs> so answer. Say, yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> Some things I, I'd like to think I'm decisive about, but other things I'm not decisive about. So I'm... I'm uh, probably undecisive more than decisive i have to ask because the film overall is about a couple called billy and patty and and they ran away uh from their hometown and their parent the respective parents to live their life to the fullest did patty give birth to a nine pound baby boy or ten pound baby boy that's the way baby boy there you go it makes me want to ask you mate uh how did you meet uh sharon sharon being your wife my dear supportive wife so i i was among being a, a failed rugby player, as your daughter has so kindly pointed out, I was a failed surf life-saving Ironman, and I was very keen to try and become one. Uh, I didn't start doing that till I was about 25 years old, and I'd moved across to Perth. So I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney, so I was a member of a surf club over there, but when I moved to Perth, I found I could actually ride my push bike to the beach, so I really embraced my desire to be an Ironman when I got to Perth, and I was training at the local pool, Claremont Swimming Pool, and my wife, who I didn't know at the time, was a very good water polo player, and she was down there training for water polo, and I remember seeing her sitting on the block, and she had a back to me, and she had quite a masculine physique, I would call it Nigel. Careful, mate. (laughs) (laughs) She had a narrow waist and quite broad shoulders and was quite quite muscular in a a nice way, and I thought, oh, she looks... She looks pretty nice, and I'd I'd done journalism. I ended up doing journalism um, over here because I left my course in at Macquarie and went and did phys ed, but got over here did journalism. And then I, I remember I got home. It must have only been about a week after seeing her at the pool, and I'd, I'd see her a couple of times a, a week when we were both training down there. And there was a thing on the news, and all these girls put their heads up and said their name. And because Australia just won the women's World Cup, and there were seven Western Australians in the women's. Australian team that won the World Cup and as I'm just watching the news this girl's put her head up and I said that's the girl that I like from down at the swimming pool so because I'd done journalism I thought what I could do is write an article about the seven women in the Australian team from WA and see if I could get that in the papers and I thought that way I could actually get to interview her uh, legitimately as part of this story and I rang up a guy called Russ McKinnon who was the media manager for rugby that I've been dealing with and I said I want to do a story on these water polo women. He said, well, the one you need to talk to is a girl called Sharon Wheelock. And coincidentally, that was the one that I actually liked from down to the pool. So she was um, working for water polo WA at the time. So I went and sat with her for about an hour and a half and found out everything that I needed to know about her and sent her a bunch of flowers to thank her, as I always do whenever I do an interview with anyone. And um, yeah, we ended up um, eventually yeah, going out and getting married. And here we are 21 years later and still together. <laughs> so that's... 
What happened to journalistic integrity? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, we're going to stick with the uh, the water theme for your fourth choice on Find My Life. You've chosen a city beach in Perth. Um, before you tell us the story behind that, could you uh, tell us where it is and describe it? Yeah, so city of Perth, it's, it's Perth's main, I guess it's the closest beach directly west from the city, so they, they call it City Beach. So it's probably about 10 k's directly west from the city of Perth. And and it's funny, you know, being brought up at Eastwood, you know, we're probably, you know, 30 or 40 k's from the from the beach uh, at Eastwood. And But my old man used to always take us to DY Beach when I was a kid. Every Saturday, we'd, you know, we'd load up the car, we'd head out to DY. He'd push us onto waves on surf mats and we'd call in at McDonald's at North Ride on the way home. And it was just a really nice memory that I've got. And when I, you know, I've had my licence, I joined a surf club, joined Bill Gola wasn't able to get to the beach a lot because I was living at Eastwood and I said when I got to Perth I was able to get to the beach a lot more and I've always found just being at the beach very calming I, I like the look of the water and on a beautiful day with the blue sky and the blue water and the white sand it's a it's a very nice place to be and I joined the city of Perth surf club when I first got to Perth and then ended up joining another club and then stopped when we had our, our kids once my younger son turned 13 he joined the nippers down there so we all the whole family joined the club and the coastline in Perth if, if people had ever been to it's not as pretty like the, the northern beaches in New South Wales are, are beautiful because of those headlands and individual beach and those beautiful headlands and it's stunning Perth has just got this almost one long stretch of, of coastline and the, the sand is incredibly white the water is some of the clearest water that you'll see anywhere in the world and you can go down to the beach in the middle of summer and you can jump in and and head north and swim maybe 200 meters north and then when you come out you're the only person on the beach so i find it such an amazing place in that you're in the middle of a of a city but you can be at the city's closest beach and be 500 meters up the road and be like you're you know 10 hours out of the city because it's just it's so isolated and deserted and, and quiet and that um i don't know that that just that quietness and that that being on your own there's just something about it and and it's become a tradition now every family christmas we always we go to city beach for a swim in the morning and i've spent a lot of time there and it's a place that if ever i'm I'm away i always like to come back to it and if ever i've have people from uh, the east coast come across it's a place i'm very proud of as a western australian and I, i love to take people down to city beach as a you know, as a, as, a, as a West Australian now, as I call myself, and, and show them this beautiful part of the city that I now live in. So it's a real source of comfort for me, and it's a real source of pride. Because, you know, Nigel, when, when I first met you and you came across to Perth, the first place we took you, and it was a miserable howling sea breeze was in it, and it was quite ugly, but we took <laughs> you down to City Beach, and, and the next time we went down, it was, it was beautiful and offshore. So, it's, you know, there's so many moods of the ocean, and that's it. it's just something, like a place, I'm, it, it feels like home to me and for someone that grew up on the other side of the country that that's a place that I just I, I feel at home so it's, it's a yeah, it's a real special place for me it's wonderful hearing you light up when you talk about it and I think in this modern society that we live in there is a real issue with people not being attached to their immediate geography because because mm. you, you can be attached on the internet to people in you know Russia Brazil Madrid whatever and not know your next door neighbor and I think yeah. there's a real power and profundity in being able to genuinely love 
the, the, the ground that you're on. I mean, I mean you know, the, the, the place where you can walk to. And it's like, um, you know, the TV show Cheers, where, you know, it's a place you go where, where everybody knows your name. Like, there's always going to be someone that you've seen or you've, so you're familiar with it. And, and it's like, you, you, can, you can turn left or right and be completely on your own. But if, if you want a bit of company, you're going to bump into someone if you want to have a chat to someone. So it's, um, it's got, a, it's a, yeah, for me, it's a, it's a great mix of what it offers. Oh, wonderful. Listen, we're coming to my favourite uh, of the five on Five of My Life, which is uh, people's possession. Uh, and it's because people, you know, usually don't choose a Ferrari or something moronic. They, they choose something of little monetary value, but something that has enormous uh, emotional value. Uh, and you've chosen Marty Roebuck's test jersey against Scotland. Now, for people who don't know, I mean, Marty was a bloke, I think, that you had your stepbrother's young man living with experience. But explain who Marty Roebuck is and tell us about the jersey and the story behind it. Look, so I, I grew up wanting to play for Australia. That That was... That was what I did, and for me, at rugby union, this is at rugby union. Yeah, that was what I wanted to do. So I started off in rugby, in league first, and I switched to rugby union, and that was what I I wanted to do. So I, I I had a little bit of success as a junior. I played sort of at, at Eastwood. I won the I won the Colt of the Year at Eastwood for being the, the most outstanding Colt, and the runner up that year was a guy called Richard Harry and Richard went on to play 37 test matches for Australia and I was never heard of from again so I, <laughs> I kind of thought that I was on the right path to to becoming a wallaby and then Marty was from Bathurst and I have a lot of relatives up in Bathurst and Marty was actually going out with my cousin Trish at the time and I was in year 11 Marty was in year 12 as was my cousin my cousin Trish was staying down with my family because she was the same age as my sister and got on well with my sister and She'd done a HSC and Marty drove down with her HSC results and delivered them to her at my house. And that was the first time I'd met, met Marty. And Marty had played New South Wales schoolboys in the seconds with a, a good mate of mine. And I just hit it off with him. We just we just got on extremely well, had a, had a similar sense of humour. He stayed down to play Colts for Eastwood. And then he was just, as I said, my sister went overseas and there was a spare room at my house. So Marty ended up moving in with me and we both wanted to to represent Australia as Wallabies so we both trained hard this was back in the day where you trained Tuesday Thursday night and you played Saturday but we trained every single day we were doing cross training before it was fashionable we'd we'd ride bikes up hills till we couldn't ride anymore we'd run we'd take ourselves down the park and do all sorts of drills and things and and ended up he ended up playing first grade at Eastwood I was playing fourth grade at Eastwood uh, he kept developing went on to play for New South Wales I was still playing fourth grade and then he went on to play for the Wallabies and I remember there was before he, he did that there was a guy called Adrian McDonald who'd um, played at Ramick then came across to Eastwood and he was in the he made the Wallabies in 1983 and we went up to where uh, Pugs as his name was living and in a just a washing basket was his was his Wallaby jersey and I remembered me and Marty picking up this this Wallaby jersey and both holding it and looking at it just thinking that it was like we'd found the holy grail like it, we were both so overawed by this simple piece of gold cloth and that was what we both wanted so much and you know marty ended up going on and, and doing it he made his first wallaby team in 1989 then he went on to play in the world cup in 1991 and yeah he gave me this wallaby jersey that he actually wore in a in a test match so this this jersey that i that he gave me had actually it had been in the wallaby dressing room it had, it had run out onto the ground it had stood there and listened to the anthem the whistle had gone and this jersey was out there for 80 minutes in the cauldron of a test match and he gave me that jersey that had done exactly what i wanted to do so i i ended up framing that jersey and it's i've got it stuck up on the wall in one of my kids bedrooms here and it's 
it just it represents to me everything that I wanted to achieve in my life was it was in that that jersey you know a lot of people wouldn't get as excited as I do about it but for me it, it is my favorite possession by a long way and didn't you end up uh, representing your country anyway? Yes, I did, Nigel. So that dream of mine never died. Like, I, I, I never let it go. And I don't know why I was so obsessed with wanting to play for Australia, but I was. Because I, 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 I just always thought that people that played for Australia were better. I, I, I put them on a... I'm the classic person who just put them on a pedestal because I remember, you know, I was in the car with Marty one time and we went to the, the service station just to, to fill up petrol. And, and a guy's at the other bows are filling up his petrol and he's come across and shook Marty's hand and said, oh, you know, Marty, you know, great game on the weekend. That was, you know, really well done. And, and Marty's just said, thanks very much. So I just found it was, uh, you know, probably part wanting to have my ego stroked because it had, had it never been stroked. And I just thought it'd be such a cool thing to have people just off the street come up and, and pat you on the back for something that you'd done. And, and the thing that you'd done was was play for Australia. So you, you were getting so much out of, your, out of it for yourself intrinsically because you were playing for Australia but extrinsically had people coming on the back and patting on the back for what you'd done so you know when I couldn't do rugby anymore I, I tried surf life life saving I wanted to play represent Australia in surf life saving like Grant Kenny did I tried swimming because I thought maybe I could be a swimmer by the time I tried lawn bowls I thought maybe that was my ticket you know <laughs> I, I could make the lawn bowls team because my grandfather was a good lawn bowler so I thought maybe that's where the genes are going to kick in but then I found out the Australian lawn bowls team most of the kids in that were 19 or 20 and by this stage I was 40 and I thought oh god I've missed the boat on lawn bowls as well and ended up, I ended up going to Brisbane to watch the Wallabies because I thought if you can't play for Australia, watch Australia play. That was that was my next thing to do. So I went up and watched them. And on the way up, a mate of mine pulled out a book of Sudoku puzzles. And to cut a very long story short, I, I discovered there was no Australian Sudoku team. Did a bit of sniffing around and ended up picking myself and, and three mates in the, the first ever Australian Sudoku team. And we went across to India, the four of us. None of us had played Sudoku before, but it was a chance to wear the green and gold. So we, we decked ourselves out in five different uniforms, had the blazer and the tie. And the blazer was modelled on the 1948 Olympic blazer because I hate all the new Olympic blazers that are you know blue or white or off green, whatever the hell they are. So we went really traditional with the gear and went across and um, I had my own green and gold Australian playing kit for the when we were actually competing over there and yeah I actually went across and and got to play for Australia and, and it, it's it still it's one of the one of the proudest moments of my life was sitting in the the great hall at the Holiday Inn in Goa and I had my puzzle booklet face down on the desk in front of me and and the, the boss of the World Puzzle Federation has come out the front and he said you may start and I remember when I turned my puzzle over and I picked up my pencil I thought that this is it, I'm, I'm actually playing for Australia. The, you know, the whistle had blown, the siren had sounded. That was my moment, that was my wallaby running on to Cardiff Arms Park or the SGG, wherever it might have been. And I, I actually had the time to sit there and think to myself, I'm playing for Australia. And it was, um, it was. I still get goosebumps when I think about it now. It was such a beautiful moment. And I, I am very lucky. And as delusional as I am, Nigel, I can walk into a room with Marty Roebuck or John Eels or Steve Waugh and I stand just as tall and just as proud as them because we've all played for Australia. <laughs> and you came 89th out of 89, I guess. I did come 89th out of 89th, but that's 89th in the world, Nigel, and there aren't many people with a world ranking of 89th, so I'll take that any day. And, and you've written a just fantastic book called Full Contact Sudoku about that story, and that's the, the story that's being made into a film. Yeah, yeah, and I, again, I didn't know, I tend to jump into things that I don't really know what I'm doing, and I remember just coming home on the bus from Goa, and I, I just thought it'd be nice to just have a bit of a record about what I'd done so I just started taking a few notes about how the results went and, and what we'd done over the couple of days and then when I got home 
I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind trying to write a book about the story. And again, I didn't know how to write a book, but I thought just start at the beginning. So it's almost like a uh, autobiography, I suppose. I just started with my life and wanting to play for Australia. And and then, yeah, luckily, I, as you know, I, I you'd, you'd written your book, um, Fat 40 and Five, so I'd got in con- contact with you and asked you for a bit of advice. And you told me I needed to get an agent. So I ended up, ended up getting an agent, got rejected half a dozen or a dozen times, finally found one. And she took it to HarperCollins and they loved it. So they... Um, yeah, they, they published Full Contact Sudoku and again, it was just a very nice, I guess it's a nice thing for for me to have as as a record of my life up until that time because I went into a bit of detail. So it's, um, I guess my, some people write diaries. I, I wrote a book. I've seen you give that story as a speech on stage and I've seen you get a standing ovation with people cheering and clapping and it, it's just, it is such a a funny, endearing and inspiring story, mate. So uh, I can't wait to see it on the screen. But I think the reason that people like it is, is because I'm no good and there is no Cinderella story and a lot of speakers speak because they're authorities on a subject. The only reason I speak is because I can't play Sudoku. So I think it's a very relatable story because there was no ability required whatsoever in what we did. It was just about having a positive attitude and and thinking this seems like fun. Let's go and do that. And I just think people can really relate to it because the majority of people, you know, your kid's not going to go play for the Wallabies. Your kid's not going to open the batting for Australia. And I tell the story about my mum, you know, sitting for three hours to watch me play cricket for 12 seconds because I got out first ball. So a lot of people can relate because, as I said, there is no Cinderella story. We didn't win. We did come last. But, um, you know, we had a go. And for some reason, we, even though we failed, we found some level of success in our failure that yeah a lot of people can relate to so I just get a real kick out of meeting people and and you know telling telling my story I love it I think underachievement has got a bad press mate there should, <laughs> there should be more of it it's been, it's been so lovely chatting to you on five night thank you for getting over your your worries about uh, not being worthy enough for the format I think you've been a a delightful guest I have to move on to my uh, six and final question which is who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why? So water polo has been a, a big part of my life simply because of my wife. I never played it when I was in Sydney, but coming across here and Sharon was in the Australian team for nine years. She ended up, she played, I think she ended up playing a thousand games of A grade or above. She played A grade for 34 years. So so water polo is this, and she forced my kids into playing it. One's still playing now. He, he's been brainwashed. So water polo is this, in, a massive part of of you know, of my life now. And there's a there's a fella by the name of Tom Hode. And Tom Hode, he'd be he'd be eighty years old now. He went to four Olympics as a player and four Olympics as a coach. He coached my boys um, through school and even now I think he's still coaching four teams as an eighty year old. Two years ago him and my wife took um, my younger son Ben and a group of thirteen 17-year-old, 18-year-old boys across to France, Slovakia and Russia on a tour. And this bloke is still the most passionate man about the game of water polo. I think he's just been inducted into the Australian uh, Sporting Hall of Fame with Dennis Lilly, Jana Pittman, um, Ian Thorpe that got announced just the other week. So so Tom Hoda's been elevated to that legendary status. But to sit with him, to see him on the edge of the pool, still coaching now, and I said still coaching four, four teams as an 80-year-old, and the passion that he still has for that game is he's extraordinary. And he's he's a highly intelligent man. He used to teach um, languages at, at Hale School over here. So he, he's travelled the world. 
Um, and mate, he's just, he's a fascinating man. So for me, a fascinating man with an amazing story to tell. And I think, because he's not only with his sport, but he's highly intelligent, he would be a great guest for you. Oh, Mick Collis, thank you so much for sharing your five on five of my life. My absolute pleasure, and I hope I make the, I hope I don't just sleep on the cutting room floor. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and Sixty. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.